Second Kings chapter 17 this morning. I'll be honest with you, and, and I want you to I want you to hear everything I'm about to say, because I the, or else you'll take it wrong. I don't know why I'm preaching this sermon this morning, and the reason I say that is because this wasn't the sermon I would have chose to preach, and um, I, I I'll be honest with you, I don't know who it's going to apply to. The Holy Ghost knows who it's going to apply to. But there's no one that I have in mind that I would think this would particularly apply to. But this is what the Lord laid on my heart this morning. And uh, things always go better when we just mind Him. So I'm going to try to mind the Lord this morning, preach what He gave me. Second Kings chapter number 17. We'll begin reading in verse number 20. We'll read down to verse number 34. Second Kings chapter number 17, verse number 20. The Bible says, And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of spoilers, until he had cast them out of his sight. For he rent Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drave Israel from following the Lord, and made them sin a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, they departed not from them, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now that's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, and when God allowed them to be carried away into captivity. Verse 24 says, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom ye brought from thence. Let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own, and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made Succoth Beneth, and the men of Cuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashamah, and the Avats made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burnt their children in fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. We'll stop reading there and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us be here today. Thank you for this precious church, Lord, my friends, my family in Christ. 
Lord, thank You for their love and affection, support and friendship and encouragement that they show daily to me and my family. Lord, I pray, though, amongst this day, Lord, that, that I don't deserve and a day, Lord, where we're rejoicing in what You've done over the past 12 years, let us not lose sight over the purpose in gathering here today to hear from heaven, Lord, for You to do a work in our hearts and in our minds, for You to get glory out of our receptivity, our obedience to the Word of God. And I pray that if there's any heart, Lord, who, and you know, as the Spirit of God situated perfectly with absolute perception, you know if there's any heart here uh, that needs to call on you, to believe on you, to receive you as Savior. Lord, I pray you'd convict them today, show them their need of salvation. And I pray that you'd teach us your word today and consecrate us further unto you. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When we read this passage of Scripture, it begins by telling us of God's punishment of Israel. Now, if you know and remember a little bit about Israel's history, uh, because of uh, the the sin of men, the Bible tells us that God uh, rent the kingdom of David, rent Israel in two, uh, because of the sin of David, because of the disobedience of uh, men. He rent the kingdom in two, and He allowed the kingdom to be split into two kingdoms. There was a southern kingdom of two tribes known as the kingdom of Judah. And there was a northern kingdom of ten tribes known as the kingdom of Israel. And all throughout the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, uh, you find this parallel, almost like a railroad track running along. And on one side is the history of Israel. On the other side is the history of Judah. And when you study that history, you'll find that by and large, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, lived in absolute idolatry and apostasy through that entire time. Uh, Later on, after the portion of Scripture that we've read this morning, the kingdom of Judah, due to their disobedience, their rebellion, they likewise would be carried into captivity. But these short verses at the beginning of our passage detail when the northern kingdom was carried away, was really, we could use the term, obliterated by the Assyrian Empire. Whenever the king of Assyria carries them away, he replaces them with pagan Gentiles from lands that knew not God. By the way, those those individuals would intermarry with what Jews were left and from them would come the Samaritans that were so loathed and despised and disdained by the children of Israel. But when we read this passage, it's almost as though God is wanting to give us a commentary to frame what He's about to say concerning the peoples that came to dwell there after the children of Israel. And it begins by telling us of the punishment of Israel. In this, it reveals to us three eternal and immutable truths about God. I don't know if you noticed them, but look with me at verse 20. The Bible says, And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel, and afflicted them, and delivered delivered them into the hand of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. The first thing God wants us to know about his nature, about his conduct, about his character, about his behavior is that God is a God of judgment. Now, you're not going to hear that talked about very much in these days that we live in. But all throughout the Bible, if a person honestly reads the Word of God, they must come away understanding that God is a God of justice, and if He is a God of justice, then He is likewise a God of judgment. 
God will one of these days judge this world in righteousness. And we need to understand fundamentally as human beings that we've got a God that we're going to have to reckon with one of these days. Uh, society lives and behaves as though they're never going to have to answer to God. But if you know the truth of the Word of God, you know there'll come a day we're going to have to stand before Him. One day you're going to stand before Him. One day I'm going to stand before Him. Have we done anything to prepare for that day? Now, you know, uh, if you're acquainted at all with the Scriptures, you know what a person needs to do first and foremost to be ready for that day, and that's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To have your sins forgiven, to be justified, pardoned, made a child of God. Because there's coming a day we're going to stand before Him. And when you stand before Him, what will you have to stand upon? I'll have the promise of God to stand upon, not because of me or anything I've done, but because I believed His Word and trusted in Him. God is a God of judgment. Then look at verse 21. The Bible says, For he rent Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Jeroboam drave Israel from following the Lord. Notice this next phrase. And he made them sin a great sin. I've heard people make the statement before that there are no big sins and little sins. When I read my Bible, it seems apparent to me there are degrees of sin. The Bible says that, uh, you know, some will be judged with, uh, beaten with many stripes, some with few. Uh, certainly the Bible uh, describes weightier matters of the law. And here your Bible says that Israel didn't just sin, they sinned a great sin. Tells me this, uh, you know, a person can judge and judge unrighteously. But can I say this? God always judges righteously. What's the criteria of the judgment of God? Well, here in verse 21, the Lord wants us to know not only is He a God of judgment, but He's a God of holiness. He demands holiness. Uh, You're either going to become holy through the holiness of Jesus Christ, or you're going to stand in the infidelity of your sin and unrighteousness. One of the two. Uh, God does not look upon sin. He does not excuse sin. He does not tolerate, uh, tolerate sin. He does not permit sin. He, he will one day deal with the sin of this world. He is a God of holiness. Holiness is the most fundamental attribute, the very essence of the character of God. You say, preacher, what's holiness? It's hallowedness. It's the uniqueness of who God is. It's the thing that makes God God and makes us not Him. It is perfect, impeccable, uh, immaculate righteousness. He's never done anything wrong. He's always on the right of everything. He's a holy God, man. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of holiness. But then look at verse 22. The Bible says this, For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. Now notice this next phrase. As he had said... By all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. God had made no secret of what would happen if they didn't repent and turn towards Him. He had said explicitly, He had said repeatedly, that if you don't repent and turn towards Me, I'll deliver you into the hands of spoilers. You can go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. And He says it long before this day. uh, He said before Israel was even a nation, He had said there's coming a day you're going to dwell in the land. And when you do, if you walk in the idolatry of the land, I'm going to deliver you over to spoilers. Now these long years have passed. And though the judgment of God has marched slowly, it has finally arrived at Israel's door. And the Bible emphasizes the fact that God was doing nothing except what He had said the whole time 
that he was going to do. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of holiness. But then verse 23 reminds me he's a God of truth. In other words, he deals with men in truth. There's nothing deceptive or duplicitous about God. He always speaks plainly and boldly. And when God tells you something is true, you mark her down. It's true. The Bible tells us that truth is fundamental to the character of God as well. So much so that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. He is the only source of absolute truth in existence. All other relative truth must step out of the way in light of the absolute truth of who God is. God's Word is absolutely true. Uh, one of these days you're going to be judged by this book. Have you ever read it? One day you're going to be judged by it. Do you know what it says? Do you know what it teaches? Do you know the truth that it communicates? I promise one of these days this book's going to matter to you because you're going to be judged by it. I'm going to be judged by it. He's a God of truth. So it tells me this. He's a God that will judge. He is a God that when He judges, He judges by holiness. And He's a God that's not lying. There's coming a day, in other words, that men are going to have to stand before God. When I read this, I'm left with this indelible impression, this absolute conviction that one day all of us are going to have to stand before God and answer for the life that we've lived. Now, why does God frame the next narrative portion of Scripture with this? I think He's wanting to put into stark relief the behavior of Israel, His dealing with them, and the people that then came in afterwards. And He's wanting us to understand why the way these people behaved was so devious and nefarious, why it was wrong, why it was sinful. With the land empty of God's people, the king of Assyria imported pagans to dwell there. They, in a sense, became the Israelites. They're dwelling in the land of Israel. They, in a sense, became the Israelites, though they were in no way truly God's people. They had no relationship to God. They had no knowledge of God. But if you as a stranger had walked through the land of Israel, if you as a stranger had said, show me an Israelite, then one of those men would have stepped forward and said, I dwell in the land of Israel. Here I am. I am an Israelite. Though they were not by nature Israelites, though they were not by spiritual pedigree Israelites, they still would have called themselves Israelites. They were geographically, uh, they were geographically and culturally God's people but they were spiritually dead and estranged from God. If you had said, who are these people? They would have said, they're Israelites. If you had said, who's the God of Israel? They would have said, Jehovah. But there was a deep disconnect between the people of God and the God of those people. We could say this this morning, and I think you'll understand what I mean. You know, many churches today are likewise filled with people that though outwardly professing Christ... You asked them, said, what, what are you? They'd say, I'm a Christian. You said, what do you believe? They'd say, I believe the Bible. But when you look at their life, when you look at their conduct, when you look at their testimony, though outwardly professing Christ, they are spiritually dead. Let's say it this way. Their Christianity is merely cultural. I've said this several times from the pulpit here recently, and I, like I said, I don't know why God's having me preach this message. There's no one I have in mind. If if you're sitting there lost, been hiding out in a church pew for uh, 10 years or 20 or 30 years, I don't know about it. I'm being honest with you. This is what God laid on my heart. But it does seem like lately we've made reference to this idea of cultural Christianity a lot. 
you've probably heard me say, and I'll repeat again, that there are three infectious forms of Christianity that are pervasive. They're spreading. They're like a cancer in Christianity today. There is what we could call celebrity Christianity. That's Christianity where the emphasis is not on the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's on the man in the pulpit. It's about his personality, his charisma, his leadership, his administration. It's not really about what the Lord wants, but rather it's about merely following the vision of this man. Likewise, on the other side of the coin, there's what we could call consumer Christianity. And that's sort of the inverse of that. It's celebrity Christianity is Christianity that, that does not give the preeminence to the Lord, but gives the preeminence to the man in the pulpit. Consumer Christianity does not give preeminence to the Lord, but rather gives it to the people in the pews. Everything's focus group, market tested, trying to figure out what the people want and give them whatever they want. Can I be honest with you? Uh, there's a lot of things in your life I don't know what you need, but there's a lot of things in your life you don't know what you need. Uh, and uh, let me tell you, I, I praise the Lord for Cracker Barrel, but church ain't no Cracker Barrel. Amen? This is not a consumer environment. It's not a place where things are to be market tested and decided and dictated by polls and and uh, various uh, different, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, questionnaires, just trying to figure out what people want and what people like. You say, preacher, you think it's all about you? No, I think it's all about him. It ain't about me. But it ain't about you either. It's all about Him. But then there's a third type of influence, and it's what I want to preach to you on this morning, and that's cultural Christianity. Christianity that is superficial in nature. Christianity that goes no deeper than a person's words and affiliation. doesn't really affect their life, and they don't intend for it to. It is merely the box they check, the, the tag they wear, the label that they want to place to themselves, but there's no substance to it. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, the corruption of cultural Christianity. When we read this passage of Scripture about these pagans that come and dwell in this land, they do their best to emulate and imitate, to replicate what real true worship looked like. But we find that fundamentally they could not behave as the people of God because they were not the people of God. Do you know why lost people can't behave like Christians? Because they're not. We can spend all of our time getting angry about a broken, lost world, living like a broken, lost world. But the truth is, you lived that way before you got born again. And there is no amount of legislation, there's no amount of reformation that's going to change the way this world lives. The only hope is regeneration. Nothing else can change this society. So when we read this passage of Scripture, we have a picture of what it looks like. And you may have heard me use this terminology and wonder, well, preacher, now what does it look like? What is cultural Christianity? I mean, certainly, if you're a Christian, that's going to inform the culture of your life. But that's not what I mean. I don't mean we behave and live and act like a Christian. I mean the only thing that's Christian about us is how we superficially behave and, and, and present ourselves. And that's what we find in these people. You say, preacher, what does cultural Christianity look like? Well, I think there's four pictures here in our text that shows us what cultural Christianity is. Notice with me verse 24. The Bible says, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Cutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim. 
and placed them. I like that language. It's important. Let me say it rather that way. It's distinct. He placed them. They didn't come there because they wanted to be there. He placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. Let me pause there and tell you that most modern social psychological theory would be tracking right along with what the king of Assyria did at this moment. You'll hear it all the time. Public policy is formulated around this idea that if you change someone's environment, you'll change their behavior. That the only wrong that people do, they do as a product of their misfortune or a product of their environment. This is why the government seeks to fix every problem in society by throwing money at things. Well, if we put, if we give people money, if we give, hey, you say, preacher, uh, what about them stimulus? You take yours? Yeah, amen. I ain't going to tell you what I bought with it. Because if they didn't give it to me, they're just going to give two checks to you. Amen. You still got any of it? Don't answer that. Did it fix anything? No. There is an entire social policy. By the way, I'd I'd trade them. I'd give them back the the check and the inflation if I could. Amen. Uh, There is this public policy of if you change a person's environment, it changes their behavior, it changes their conduct. Is that true? I understand they teach it in colleges. I understand it's the, the, the most present modern theory. I understand it's the accepted status quo amongst academics. But what does God say about such a thing? Well, notice what the Bible says in verse 25. So far, the social scientists and God, or, and the king of Assyria, rather, they seem right in line. But verse 25 reveals the weakness. It says, and so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Of course they didn't. Why would they? They didn't come there to fear the Lord. They were placed there. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Let me say number one this morning. Preacher, what's cultural Christianity? What does it look like? It looks like relocation without repentance. The notion that if we place ourselves in the house of worship, that makes us a Christian or makes us a child of God. Notice three things here. Number one, notice their residence in the land. They were happy to come and eat of the good of the land. And I can't tell you the numbers of people that I've seen throughout uh, my ten years of pastor and, and throughout even my life as a Christian who come to a place in life, they're dissatisfied with their emptiness, with their brokenness, and they say, you know what I need? I need church. Now listen very carefully. I believe in church. I'm for church. I go to church all the time. I'm at church sometimes when ain't nobody at church. Amen. I'm for church, but can I tell you something? What you need for the brokenness of your life, if you're lost and undone, is not church, it's Christ. Now, those two things are not are not mutually incompatible. You get born again, God's going to plant you in a local church. But understand that just coming and seeking to reform your life by being in the church house is not the same as repenting and turning to God. A great many people will say, well, I want to turn over a new leaf. They'll come back. I ain't worried about your new leaf. What about all your old leaves? What about that life of rebellion against God? What about that life of disobedience? You and God just not going to talk about that? He's going to pretend like that didn't happen? Because a God of judgment and a God of holiness and a God of truth is not going to help you be a hypocrite by ignoring those sins and that life. The problem was not they came to the land of Israel. The problem was all they wanted to do was just show up and live the way they had always lived. And they thought by dint of them being in the land, that would somehow make them the people of God. I see their residence in the land, but it didn't take long. And their true nature showed. It says in verse 25, so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they feared not the Lord. Now this phrase, fear not the Lord, you're going to find it many times throughout our passage. It reflects the idea of worship, particularly 
particularly public worship. God's not against public worship. Uh, We should not be private in our devotion of the Lord. But understand that your public worship should be the expression of and outgrowth of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this term, feared not the Lord, what it's speaking of is they didn't worship God according to the law. Let me say it this way. Not only do we see their residence in the land, but we see their rebellion towards the law. Funny thing about it, just being in a new place didn't make them want to live right. And you know, I found this to be true. People oftentimes come to church and preacher, we need to start getting the kids in. And maybe we need to start doing a little better and maybe this and maybe that. And it's not long and pretty soon they're out again. You know why? Because you sticking in and living for Christ is not so much a matter of finding the perfect church. Oh, I'll just say it again. You got them overalls on. Just breathe deep. You'll be okay. Gave you some breathing room. If you got breathing room, I got preaching room, all right? (laughs) You know, they'll say, well, now, preacher, we just we want to turn over a new leaf. We want to try to do better. Uh, but the truth of the matter is this. It's not a matter of just coming and saying, I'm going to get my kid under the environment of the local church. They've got to see a radical transformation in your life, including but not limited to <clears throat> repentance for a life of disobedience to God. It's funny. We've raised a generation of kids that don't know how to get right. And we see this all the time, man. People have relationships, friendships, things like that. Something goes sour. Somebody gets hurt. People just walk away. Never make it right. Where'd they learn that? Well, they learned that by people's attitude and disposition towards God. Because that's how most people treat God. They live in sin. They live in disobedience. They live in rebellion. They just want to walk away from God. And then well, when they are sick, miserable, the lion's coming in and devouring them, they just want to come back in, sit back down, and pretend like nothing ever went wrong. Hey, listen, we see relocation without repentance, the residence in the land, the rebellion towards the law. But what do we find in verse 25? Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. We see their rejection by the Lord. Can I tell you, they may accept that level of Christianity, but God won't. And so what does God do? He gives them over prey to the lions. Now, one of the things you'll find in Scripture is lions ain't no problem for God. I think Daniel settles that, don't you think? He can make them your pillow. (laughs) He ain't worried about lions. And we find that God would use the animal world, the animal realm, to do His bidding at times. The Bible doesn't say just that He permitted it, that He sent lions among them. What is He doing? He's allowing the viciousness, the harshness of the land to overtake them. You know what you'll find? That if all your Christianity is is mere cultural, it won't be long and the devil will absolutely hammer you. Hey, there were lions all through the land of Israel. Why hadn't they bothered the Israelites? Well, because God's the one that has a purview over them. And He kept them safe and He watched over them. And the truth of the matter is, man, this thing of living for Christ, this ain't no game. The old songwriter used to say, it's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation hall. This thing is no joke. If you're going to live for God, you better have your heart where God needs it to be. I see that cultural Christianity... Preacher, what does it look like? It looks like relocation without repentance. Then look at verse 26. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. What did the king of Assyria do? Well, he commanded, saying, 
Carry thither one of the priests whom ye brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Preacher, what's cultural Christianity? What does it look like? Well, number one, it looks like relocation without repentance, never turning to God, but just seeking to slip in on God and pretend as though things were never awry. But number two, it looks like education without transformation. They thought, well, the problem is they just ain't going about it the right way. If they knew how to carry out the ceremony, the pomp, the circumstance, the formality of this, if they could just be educated to behave, then they'd be okay. We find, and I won't dig into it till we get there in the preaching, but you know this didn't make any change in them. You know why? Because the problem was not that they didn't know better, it's that they didn't want better. And a lost individual, the problem in their life is not that they don't know better. Now, it's true, they may be unaware of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is the only hope of righteousness in their life. But you know funny thing about it? You can go from uh, sea to shining sea. You can go from where the sun rises here and, and sets there. You can go to the darkest of pagan villages. You can go to the most isolated of communities. And everywhere you go, men have some sort of code of morality. The agnostics and the atheists would claim that this is merely survival of the fittest. Funny thing about it, sometimes I think I'd survive a little better if I didn't have no morals. Amen? It's a cutthroat world, isn't it? Doggy, dog. You're all right. You can laugh a little bit. That's okay. It's not survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest doesn't tell you that it's wrong to steal from someone. Survival of the fittest would tell you it's in your interest to steal from someone. Survival of the fittest doesn't tell you not to murder someone. Sometimes survival of the fittest would tell you you need to murder someone. But all across this world that you go, and this true, Brother Charlie, you'll find all across the world, men have some basic fundamental understanding of what right and wrong is. You know why that is? The book of Romans tells us that, uh, you know, that, it, that creation uh, declares the, the immutable nature of God, that the, the things which are not seen are known by the things which are, that are created, that are tangible, that we can see in the heavens and see in creation uh, His indisputable authority, His absolute power, His impeccable majesty, even all across this dark pagan world. Men know there's right and wrong. So why don't they do better? Well, there's a very simple reason. They lack the ability to do better. Because the only thing that can make a man righteous is the indwelling of the Spirit of God and the transformation of that person by being born again, by the new birth, by regeneration. And we live in a society today where for years, and I think maybe this this whole system is starting to crumble, as they've started to admit that the term science is not a clinical term, it's a trademark term. They have. They admitted that the other day. They admitted that. Head of, the head of the UN said, we own the science. That's what she said. We own the science. And as we've begun to understand that this world's concept of science is not very scientific in the first place, hopefully this veneer is beginning to crack and to shatter and to dissipate. But for a lot of years in our society, particularly here in the West, education has been the god of our society. And I think a lot of times it was well-meaning. And by the way, let me say this. I'm not against education. I'd rather you be smart than dumb. I'm not against education. I'm not an educated person. But I'm not against a person getting an education. I don't think it's necessarily an evil. I think a lot of the educations they give nowadays are. But but the, the principle, the idea of knowledge is not a bad thing. God is a God of truth. He wants you to know the truth. But understand the thing fundamentally missing from society is not that they haven't been learned enough. 
It's not that they're not educated enough. And by the way, that includes religious education. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, knowing the principles or truths from this book, if it doesn't affect and change your heart, then all it does is bring to you a greater condemnation. Let me tell you, this book is a dangerous thing to a rebel. If you're going to take this book, read it, understand it, and continue to walk in darkness and unrighteousness, you are in far worse shape than you would have been had you never cracked it open in the first place. They thought, well, if we can religiously educate these people. And we, we notice two things in this passage. Notice, number one, the sorrow of the people. Here they are living in the land, but they know something's not right. They know something's wrong. And the reason is because religion without Christ, religion without a relationship to God, is not a satisfying thing. It doesn't matter how many social connections it creates for you. It doesn't matter what kind of support system it provides for you. It still is a bankrupt experience. Why? Because Christianity and church life in particular is nothing without the head of the church, which is Christ. So the people come and they're miserable. They're dying. Their children are dying. And they're, they're, they're wanting to say this isn't working. What's wrong? And rather than abandoning this place, they say, here's what we're going to do. Notice the solution of the king. He says, well, the problem is you don't know no better. We will religiously educate you. And then once you know the manner, that word's important, the manner. In other words, the way in which God desires to be approached. Once you know the manner of the God of this land, then everything's going to be better. So I would say this this morning, it's preacher, cultural Christianity. What is it? Keep using that term. It's relocation without repentance. I'm going to put myself in the house of God, but I'm never going to repent. I'm never going to turn to God. I'm never going to believe on Him for salvation. Or if you've already been saved, you're not going to, in sincerity, give your heart to the Lord. You're just going to live and dwell in this geographic proximity. Number two, it's education without transformation. Not a changed life, not a new life in Jesus Christ, but just religious education, just Learning the catechisms, learning the truths, learning the concepts. But notice, there's a third thing. Verse 29. The Bible says here was the problem with it. How be it? Every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in their cities wherein they dwell. The preacher, what they do here? They learned how to worship God, quote unquote. But the problem is they didn't quit worshiping their pagan gods. And here's what they did. You can imagine in a pagan home where they have a fireplace mantle and upon it all the various little gods and trinkets and, 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 and idols of the things that they worship. And rather than clearing the shelf and putting Jesus there, they just made a little room and put God right in line with all of the others. This, how do I say this right? This is essentially the philosophy of Christianity today in the world. Not a proprietary relationship with Christ. Not I trust in Him and Him alone. But rather that He is one of a number of benevolent deities. You say, preacher, how do you know that? You don't know that. Sure I do. I know it by their own terminology. I know it by their own words. I remember a few years ago, Joel Osteen going on 60 Minutes, and they asked him, uh, the Larry King of all people asked him, Heaven help us. Larry King asked him, said, uh, you know, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You call yourself a Christian. He said, well, what about these other people? Jews and Muslims, people like that. Are they going to hell? Now, I'm not an educated man. I've been asked some questions that are difficult from time to time. Some head scratchers. i got to say, that's not a tough question. 
If you're a Bible believer, you don't have to turn to the concordance to figure this one out. You know the answer to this. The answer would have been very simple. It would have been, Mr. King, I don't mean it to be unkind. I certainly am not saying it in unkindness. I'm speaking the truth in love. But the truth of the matter is, if they've never believed in Jesus Christ and Him alone as Savior, then they, just like any person that was raised in Christianity, they likewise would be on their way to hell and without hope and without God in this world. And that their external religion does not gain them any currency or favor with God, but rather that only and singularly believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ can save a man and get him to heaven. Now, wasn't that nice? Wasn't that nice? You'd put that in a Christmas card. That wasn't rude, was it? That's not what he said. Joel Osteen, uh, Joel Osteen, he said, well, Larry, I'll tell you something. Anybody, anytime you ask someone a hard question and they smile and use your first name, you better watch your wallet. Well, Larry, it's not really up to me to say who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. Let's just record scratch. Let's stop right there. If a man of God can't tell you how to go to heaven, if a man of God can't tell you the criteria of going to hell, then who can? Who can? No, none of it matter. If the preacher don't know what it takes to get to heaven, if the preacher doesn't understand that men are lost and on their way to hell without Christ, who would know? He said, it's not really up to me to say one way or the other. He said, but you know, Larry, he said, years ago, me and my dad, we went and did missionary work in India. And by the way, anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence is a doorstep away from a lie. Because it's saying, just trust me, just believe me. So we did mission work, you know, and those people there, they were Buddhists. And, 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 and you know, he said, there's a lot I don't know, Larry, but those people, they know God. They know God. If they're Buddhists, unrepentant Buddhists, they don't know God. By their own statement, by their own declared confession, they don't know God. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, here's what he was saying. He was saying at the end of the day, our term Jesus is just a generic term for whatever God we choose to worship. But really the God of, of Muslims is God. Really the God of Buddhists is God. Really the, the, you know, the God of Judaism is a God. It's the exact same form of rotten rank idolatry that existed at this time. Uh, preacher, what, do you, what is this? Well, it's religion without righteousness. Notice, and I won't, I've already done it, the incorporation of their false gods. Not I'm tearing these idols down and believing on Jesus Christ, but rather I'm going to worship Jesus while also keeping all of my other gods. We do the exact same thing in our society, even uh, in Western society today. You say, that's not true, preacher. Well, sure, what's competing with Christ in your life? What's sitting on the same shelf with Him? Hey, what do you have to check with before you'll obey Christ? I see the incorporation of their false gods. Notice number two, I see the corruption of them. And there's a list given of these gods and who they were. Their names are quite instructive. The Bible says, verse 30, the men of Babylon, they made Succoth Bina. That name, you know what it means? It means daughter's brothel. It denotes the fact that they would take their daughters and enlist them into these idolatrous temples to act as harlots and creating a a brothel out of that temple. They'd literally prostitute their daughters to this false worship. And you know, the great tragedy of dead religion, the great tragedy of cultural Christianity is the fodder for their sacrificial fires. The wood that they give their idolatrous sacrifices on is a future generation that needs more than anything to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First person it affected was the kids 
but also denotes this, it denotes spiritual prostitution. All throughout the Bible, God uses terminology of harlotry and whoredom to denote those that professed God, but in fact were possessed of false idols. Then he describes not only spiritual prostitution, he says the men of Cuth made Nergal. The name Nergal means hero, and it denotes the idea of selfish pride. And cultural Christianity is all obsessed with the appearance with the superficial, with the veneer of things. And all that matters is that it paints the picture of a person being a hero or a noble individual. But what does it lead to? Well, the Bible says the men of Hamath, they made Ashima. The name Ashima means guiltiness or desolation. You know the problem with all these false idols? They can't soothe your soul. They can't forgive your sins. They can't make you whole. They can't fix what's broke inside you. And so what did it leave them with? It just left them with guilt with emptiness, with brokenness. Where did that lead them? Well, the Bible says the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartax. Interesting, Nibhaz, you know what it means? It means a barking dog. A barking dog. What does that remind us of? We know in the New Testament, uh, James used terminology reflecting those that had never truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he talked about a dog returning to its vomit. Denoting uh, someone that though they had professed faith in Christ, there was no change in their nature. All throughout the Old Testament, Gentiles were regarded spiritually as dogs, as unclean creatures. And then the Bible says they made Tartak. It means prince of darkness. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of spiritual prisons that it puts men in. You know why? Because it can't change their nature. At the end of the day, they're the same barking dog that they always were. They're the same lost, unclean, undone individual. What has happened in their life? Well, the prince of darkness has put a leash on them and is marching them around. And then the Bible says the Sephirvites burnt their children. Burnt their children. It ain't no worse than what goes on in our country today. I saw... Let's see how much you appreciate me this morning. I saw an article the other day where somebody was all up in arms as well. It says some cat running for something out, some politician. He's probably a liar too. They're all liars. But they were, they were running an article on this guy and, and this was their big, the, the, the liberals, this was their big slander of this guy was that he claimed that abortion is a religious sacrifice that he claimed that he was, was projecting and claiming that it was pagan and that it, it, it's a satanic sacrifice. And I thought, well, of course, of course it is. At this time, they burnt their children in fire to Moloch and to these false gods. Nowadays, they do it under the idol of self. Career, ambition, self-interest, leisure, pleasure, however you want to describe it. But you know, funny thing about it, I also saw an article the other day where the satanic temple is suing uh, one of the states who just outlawed abortion that it is an infringement upon their religious rights to sacrifice. They themselves are admitting that abortion is demonic sacrifice. That that's how they're passing their children through the fire. Why do they do all this? Well, notice the Bible says these two fellows, Adramalek and Anamalek. Some of y'all getting ready to have babies. That's a good Bible name, Adramalek. What do they mean? Well, Adramalek means honor of the king. Anamalek means image of the king. Who's the king? Well, we already know who the prince of darkness is. Uh, they could have been talking about the king of Assyria, who undoubtedly was an agent of devilish influence. But it denotes the idea of, of this was just an idol of the king, whoever the king may have been. And they worship this. Why? Well, to inflate the ego of the king. That's why. Let's say it this way. 
of subservient praise. No longer living and dwelling in what is true, but saying only that which is convenient to be able to advance oneself in the social circle that they're in. Saying whatever they had to say that was good about the king. Worshipping this idol that's an image of the king. Why are they doing that? Not because they believe it's necessarily a legitimate God, but because it looks awful good with the king if you're worshipping a little image of him. This is what much Christianity has become today. And people will even admit, well, I go to church where I make business contacts. I go to church, it's, it's, where, I, it's where I make, you know, uh, social uh, contact points. Well, I go to church, it, it helps advance me, it helps me get a leg up. Uh, listen, I, I guess if you're going to do that, go down to the Mason Lodge and do it. That ain't what the house of God's for. What is the house of God for? It's not a place that's about me, it's not a place that's about you, but rather it's a place about the Lord Jesus Christ. But see, idolatry, what it ultimately serves is self. And that's where it led them. I see the corruption of their false gods, but then I see the administration of them. The Bible says this, so they feared the Lord. How can it say that? Well, I'll explain how here in a moment. So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. All throughout the Old Testament, the Levites were constantly described as being sanctified, consecrated, set apart for the purpose of God. They were to be holy men. They weren't always in the Bible, but God's design behind them were that they be holy men. But what what does cultural Christianity do? It devalues personal holiness. It disregards personal righteousness, both in the worshiper and in the administrator over the house of God. It, It negates all of that, and it makes it a corrupt and vile environment. In other words, it's no longer about how your relationship with Christ produces righteousness in your life. It's religion for the sake of religion. There's a final thing, and I'm done this morning. Look at verse 33. The Bible says this, They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord. That's interesting language. Verse 33 said they feared the Lord. Verse 34 says they feared not the Lord. You say, well, preacher, maybe they change. Well, no, because verse 34 says, unto this day they do after the former manners. So in other words, it's saying they feared the Lord and then turn around saying, but they don't fear the Lord. And saying this has been the case ever since the beginning of this corrupt institution. Why is that? Well, because he says this, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. In other words, the uh, the writer here says, you know, these men, they, they outwardly worship Jehovah. They outwardly, outwardly worship the God of Israel. But it didn't change their life. It didn't transform their life. And instead, it reduced their concept of the interaction between God and man to being a superficial or cultural existence, a cultural experience. They said they worshiped God but they didn't keep His Word. They said they loved God, but they didn't obey the Bible. They said they loved God, but they didn't live for God. They said, but then they lived in a different way. Preacher, what's cultural Christianity? Let me say this. It's worship without the Word. There is a great disdain for the plain truth of the Word of God in many churches today. The sad reality is a lot of people don't know the Bible and don't want to know the Bible. I'm not talking about being some kind of seminary scholar. I'm not talking about being deeply educated and all the minor points of this and that. But I'm saying in a great many churches today, there's not even an attempt to know God's opinion about a matter. And that undoubtedly is one of the earmarks of cultural Christianity. Because you see, all that cultural Christianity is interested with 
is the name. It seeks to shoplift the integrity of the testimony and pedigree of Christianity. To, to pillage it and raid it away and apply it to a vile form of living and worship. Notice two things here. Notice number one, their dual worship. They feared the Lord. What does that mean? Well, they publicly worshipped Him. But likewise, they served their own gods. All throughout the Bible, God is abundantly clear about this. That how can two walk together except they be agreed? You cannot serve two masters. All throughout the Bible, God has made abundantly clear. He loves you. He will save you. He asks nothing of you except to be the only one. That's all He requires is that you serve Him and Him alone, that you turn your heart to Him and to Him alone. But cultural Christianity seeks to live in both worlds, their dual worship. And then how did that manifest in their disregard for the Word? They weren't interested in what the Bible said. All that was was just a means to be able to uh, propagate and, and portray this external idea of being an Israelite, of being a worshiper of Jehovah, but they had no interest. Can I ask you something? How important is the Bible to you? Is God's opinion about a matter more important than anyone else's opinion about a matter? How can we call ourselves a Bible believer if we don't read it? How can we call ourselves a Bible believer if we don't obey it? How can we call... You're a Bible owner, I guess. But are you a Bible believer? A great many Christians today are Bible owners. They're probably like me and have 30 of them sitting around. I told my wife this morning, I said, I can't find my Bible. She said, take one of the other 70 you got then. But many people, though they have a, a, a superficial acquaintance with the Word of God, it's never transformed their life. You see, the, the problem with cultural Christianity is it's cultural. So, preacher, shouldn't your Christianity change your culture? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Who you are in Christ will dictate everything about the way you live. But cultural Christianity is saying, I don't need the Christ. I just need the Christianity. I don't need the Bible. I just need the blessing. I don't need the Word. I just need the worship. I don't need the transformation. I just need the externalities. That's all I'm interested in. I don't know if that's you today. As I said, I, 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 I don't know the heart of any person here, but uh, I know God doesn't give this for no reason. I know this. One of these days we're going to stand before Him. And if I'm going to get real about knowing Christ, I better do it while I still draw a breath. Because we don't know which breath may be our last. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I, I mean this sincerely. I don't know the heart's condition of anybody here. I bet you have loved ones that would fit what we described here today. I bet you do. I do. They'd say they're a Christian. You talk to them. You're saved. You're a Christian. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. How'd that happen? Well, I'm, I'm just a Christian. It's just what I believe. Well, were you ever born again? Well, you know, I just I just believe. Well, have you ever confessed yourself a sinner before God, asked forgiveness of your sins? Well, no, but, you know, I go to church, relocation. Won't you come down and ask God to get a hold of their heart this morning before it's too late? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.